way back in 537 B.C., which is when this uh, chapter was uh, written, this angel swore that in the first century A.D., and we've seen in our past sermons, this was the context of uh, this particular prophecy. In the first century A.D., this catastrophe would happen. It would happen for an exact period of time, and we're going to be looking at that uh, a little bit later on. It's really a marvelous, marvelous prophecy. And uh, thirdly, that it could not be uh, avoided. Now look at verse 7 again. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Now, I think uh, many of us wish that there was just as clear a revelation about what might happen or might not happen in Y2K as was prophesied uh, that would happen in Y.07K, in other words, in 70 uh, AD. And verse 10 says that none of the wicked would understand, but that the wise would understand what was coming to them. Now, the reason they were able to understand was because Daniel prophesied about this. In fact, Christ gave even clearer prophecies uh, concerning it in Matthew 24. And the first lesson that I want us to learn this morning is that we can only truly know about the future if God has said something about the future. And it's a really important principle uh, to lay hold of. Uh, We can make preparations for the future based on, uh, you know, educated guesses about what might happen Uh, and predictions based on current events, and I think that Proverbs 22, verse 3 says we must do that, but no one can know the future unless God has spoken about the future. Let me illustrate it this way. There was no way of predicting that the Berlin Wall would collapse. Uh, There was no way of predicting ahead of time that Nineveh would repent at the preaching of Jonah. It looked like it was headed towards certain judgment. Um, There were many people who were convinced that uh, England, Britain, was going to go through a bloody revolution just like what was happening in France. And uh, if I was living back in Britain during those days, you can bet that I would have been preparing to some degree so that I would be able to focus on, continue to focus on ministry uh, should such a thing happen, but the revolution never came. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, that no one anticipated the speedy incredibly speedy turnaround that the First Great Awakening uh, achieved both in England as well as in America. And uh, on my account, I think there's plenty of information to make me pessimistic about the near future uh, in America, but I have to admit that the prophecies, well, there weren't prophecies, but the predictions that Howard Ruff and that uh, Gary North and Larry Burkett and others have made over the past 50 years have not panned out. Uh, I'm pessimistic, but my pessimism has not yet panned out. And uh, the wise in verse 10 knew the future only because God showed them the future. Now, optimists also forget this principle many times. There were many, many examples in history where uh, optimists have presumed to understand the future and they were disappointed because they were not prepared for the worst. And uh, I'm sure there's probably some of you here who are convinced by the evidence that's out there that there's not really going to be uh, uh, earth-shaking repercussions in in America from uh, the stock market, you know, in the next uh, year or two, or from the Japanese crisis or the Asian crisis or the Y2K crisis uh, or the $6 trillion debt 
or the trade deficit, or just recently we read about Mexico, you know, going under. And you may be right on that. Some people are convinced some of these, you know, could have a tremendous impact. Others of those could not. You may be correct, or you just may be a born optimist. Um, uh, there was a, a saying that was current amongst the Roman soldiers in the first century A.D., that uh, soldiers are optimists, and if an oracle, this was a pagan oracle, was to say to ten soldiers that nine of them were going to die today, all ten of them would be convinced it was the other nine. You know, it may happen to them, it's not going to happen to me. And I think the Titanic is just a classic example of how many times there is an unwarranted optimism and unheeded warnings as well. And the first century Israel was no exception. Ignoring this prophecy... Many Jews thought that God just couldn't do away with their civilization. Uh, it, it didn't help that they had crystal clear revelation in Daniel 12 or in Matthew 24 because some people just won't study the evidence no matter how clear it may be. Now, I don't know for sure if the optimists or the pessimists are correct in terms of the economy or in terms of Y2K or in terms of other, some of these other crises. And you know, if I was living in Britain before World War II, Given the evidence that was around, I'm not sure I would know for sure if Churchill was correct or if Chamberlain was correct. Remember, Churchill was saying that Germany's going to invade, they're a terrible threat, we ought not to be having this trade with them and whatnot. Chamberlain says, nah, there's no danger there whatsoever. Now, the nice thing about England uh, under Chamberlain was even though England under Chamberlain, and most of them agreed with Chamberlain, even though they were falsely... Uh, presuming the best, or hoping for the best, they were very rightly and correctly preparing for the worst. And uh, you can see that just from the statistics. Ever since 1933, they had, for several years, been building up their military in many different um, uh, directions as a war machine that made all the difference in the world when disaster did strike. And most of that buildup I think Chamberlain sometimes has given, uh, you know, more hard hits than he could because he didn't know the future either. But most of that buildup was under Chamberlain. So you might say, hope and pray for the best like Chamberlain and prepare for the worst like the British military did. Now, even though we do not have any revelation concerning the next two years, 10 years, 20 years that the Lord has given to us, there are three uh, revelational certainties from this passage and other passages that I think can help us in anticipating to some degree the future. First of all, we know that God judges nations. Not just Israel. We saw already in chapter 5, God judged Babylon because of its rebellion against God, because of its sinfulness. Chapter 11 outlines some of the other uh, uh, judgments that God brought against other nations as well. And if you read some of the other prophets, Amos is one, and there's other prophets, they spoke judgments against Edom, Assyria, Moab for sins that are precisely the same sins that are being flagrantly committed in America today. And so unless you can prove that America does not deserve judgment, I think uh, you need to come to the August 30 meeting Sunday evening to know how to prepare for ministry so that your focus can be right uh, during a time like that uh, or even during a time when there is no uh, calamity threatening. How to prepare emotionally, how to prepare spiritually, how to prepare physically and what to do, what God would have you do if financially and in other ways you cannot prepare physically. There are things that can still be done uh, even there. And uh, so some of that information I think you'll find helpful. But the first certainty is that God 
judges nations. He always has. He always will. Secondly, verse 10 indicates that judgment comes to a nation when a church within a culture becomes corrupt. Um, Now, it's only hinted at here, but it says in verse 10, many shall be purified, made white, and refined. Now, Christ, when he gives his amplification of what Daniel 12 is talking about in Matthew 24, uh, he says that leading up to the time of that seven-year great tribulation, that the church itself would grow cold in its faith, it would compromise, it would be self-focused instead of God-focused, there would be a falling away of many, and that God would have to purge the church. Same thing that Daniel is talking about here. And so I would say you have good grounds for optimism in the future if you're convinced that the church does not need purification, the church does not need any refining whatsoever. Now, I do think we ought to be crying out to the Lord for revival. And the Lord may very well grant it. In Second Chronicles, it talks about uh, if my people, that's the church, if my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, will turn from their wicked ways, he says he will hear from heaven, he will heal the land. Not just heal the church, but heal the land. That's what we need to pray for, that judgment would be averted, that we wouldn't have to go through that. But... Um, I think it is also something we should seriously uh, take seriously the calls to uh, prepare ourselves should judgment hit. Thirdly, verse 10 says, the wicked shall do wickedly. And Christ amplifies on that as well. You read through Josephus and you see that in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, there was increasing violence, family disintegration, and especially during the war, homosexuality, greed, and wickedness. So it's not just the church's condition that calls for judgment upon a land, but also the wicked that are within a land. I'm not going to be dogmatic about the future, but I will be dogmatic that we must begin to prepare for the worst and pray and hope for the best. Now let's take a look at the details of this prophecy. And I am assuming that you have heard the last sermon that we gave on Daniel 7, some of the background uh, that went into this. We saw how perfectly all of the details fitted into the first century. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 45, ends with the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, and chapter 12, verse 1 says, at that time. So it's in the first century that these events begin to unfold. And if you keep in mind that the first sentence of chapter 12, which is half of verse 1. The first sentence is a summary of the whole period, and then he backs up in the next sentence and then on through the chapter, with beginning with Christ again, and he goes through. It all fits together. But I want to pick up where we left off in verse 7, which outlines the first half of that seven-year tribulation as being a time, times, and half a time. Now, that same phrase occurs in Daniel chapter 7, and we've seen there's really no controversy on this. Almost all scholars agree that that time, times, and half a time refers to a three and a half year period. Time is singular, so that's one year. Times plural, two years. Half a time, half a year. So one plus two plus a half is three and a half years. Now, even though there's no controversy on that, uh, I've not seen anywhere where they explain why it was divided up in that strange way. Doesn't that seem odd that he doesn't just say three and a half years instead of saying a time, times, and half a time? Well, I think there's a real good reason why he divides it up that way, and it reflects the three campaigns that Rome engaged in against Israel in that first three and a half years. The first time, or year, was the the campaign that includes uh, uh, Cestius when he almost conquered Jerusalem, and it ended with no hostilities. Rome uh, had basically left. 
The second period is two years, and that was the period of time that Vespasian and Titus were attacking Israel. And he got all the way up to Jerusalem, and then he finds out Nero is dead, and so he has to go back and he claims the throne for himself. The last period is half a year, and that reflects the period of time from Titus leaving Rome and coming back to conquer Jerusalem until Jerusalem is, 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 um, is conquered as being six months. So you can see even the little tiny details here are very important. But Israel was not yet subdued. Verse 7 speaks of something that happens after that three and a half years, after that time, times, and half a time. It says, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Now that implies the power of the people was not completely shattered during the first three and a half years. And so in verse 8, Daniel asks, okay then, give me some time clues. When will it be all finished? Uh, tell me about the second half of that of that tribulation. And it says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Now, the angel is going to give very detailed instructions on when the end of the war comes. But first of all, he closes off any further questions from Daniel. And he says, Daniel, I'm not going to give you any more information after I've answered this question uh, about the tribulation until the time of the end. And in context, he's talking about the time of the end of the old covenant, the end of Israel, the end of the temple, the end of all of those old covenant uh, uh, ceremonies. Uh, that is um, uh, when it's going to have to wait. So anyway, he uh, uh, speaks in verse 9. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of the time. He was to write these words, but no more. The book was to be closed up. Now we are going to come back to verse 10 in a moment, but I want to dive straight into verses 11 through 12, where he gives the specific answer to the timing question that Daniel had brought up on that second half of the tribulation. And I should point out, we've already seen in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 that the first three and a half years terminates, it ends with the destruction of the temple, where it's burned, sacrifice and offering being cut off, and the abomination of desolation being set up. All three happened on the same day when Titus raised his uh, standards, offered sacrifices to those gods on the temple grounds as the temple was burning. And so verse 11 starts its counting from that middle point in the war. Okay, let's read that. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now that 1,290 days was a period of intense tribulation for Israel, not just within the land of Israel, but really worldwide. And I'll just give you a few hints of that. It was during this time that the Jews were sold as slaves uh, around the world. It was during this period of time that the fortresses of Machaerus and Herodian were conquered in Israel. A cornfield, uh, archaeologist Cornfield says that it was in late 73 that the massacres of Jews in Alexandria and Cyrene took place and other lo locales around the, the Roman Empire where all of the Sicarii, those were the Jewish revolutionaries, were rounded up and executed. And Josephus goes into great detail talking about the torture of these people, trying to make them confess that Caesar was Lord. Uh, it was also the time when the Jewish temple in Egypt was looted and demolished. There was a large, huge group of Jews that followed a, a pretended Messiah in Cyrene that were put down. 3,000 wealthy Jews were slain in Libya, and their wealth was confiscated. So you can see worldwide there was a tremendous effect, and during that 1,290 days, the power of Israel 
was completely shattered. There really wasn't any resistance. There were some people hiding in the fortress of Masada, uh, way off in the wilderness, and that's what verse 12 addresses. Uh, and let me point out before I read verse 12 that these instructions that he gives here would have been very, very important to any Jews, any Christians who had escaped from Jerusalem in obedience to Christ's command. Remember in Matthew 24, Christ says, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get his coat. Let him flee to the mountains, you know, and those who are in the field flee. They did exactly that. Uh, history tells us that... Um, they, 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 they fled to a place called Pella. They were not molested there, and they came back to Israel to plant a church. And I believe that that occurred when Cestius almost conquered. He was at the temple grounds, and then for some inexplicable reason, he fled and lost huge numbers of his troops. But that was the time, I believe, that they fled. And where was I? We're going to read verse 12. It says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now, if any of those Christians who had fled to Pella thought, there aren't any more hostilities, yeah, Masada is being taken, but that's just a, a small place way off in the wilderness, we'll come back to Israel, they would have been in for a rude surprise. Because during uh, the period between the 1,290 days and through to the end when they were conquering uh, Masada, every able-bodied person in Israel was taken into slavery, slave labor, to carry food, water, war equipment, all of the supplies that they needed out to Masada. Many people died during that time. And so what he's doing here is he's giving the window of time within which it would be safe to return to Israel. So he says, blessed is he who waits, comes to the 1,335 days. Now that 1,335 days is the exact number of days from the time the temple was burned and those offerings were given up until the day that Masada fell. And I can give you some of the, the background uh, information for any of you who are, are interested on that. Uh, I've uh, got a computer program that uh, analyzes all of the, the calendars, and I've cross-checked it with the Macedonian dates, the Roman dates, the Jewish dates, and the Gregorian dates. Let me give you the Gregorian ones. That's our present ones. The temple was burned on August 3, 70 AD, uh, according to archaeologists and according to Josephus, uh, and also one Roman historian, and Masada fell 1,335 days later on March 30 of 74. And it was really not until that date that it was safe for any of these Christians who had fled to come back into Israel. Now, if you want the Jewish, it wasn't the Jewish, it was the Seleucid date that Josephus gives. It was Xanticus 15. Now, that is a remarkable prophecy. I want to take some time now and looking at what this teaches us. Well, first of all, it teaches us that we can trust God's prophecy implicitly. God controls the future. We can trust him in everything he says about the future. Let me just give you a little uh, little hint at that. Rome thought that they would be able to conquer Israel in just a few months. Uh, they thought, you know, it won't take that long to put them down. No one thought it would take them seven years like God ordained here. But because God ordained it, not even Rome could stop God's plans for the future. We can trust him. Second, it teaches that God allows barbarous calamities to afflict nations. See, the answer to the problem of evil is not to say God's hands are tied and he couldn't help in Auschwitz. He could not help, uh, you know, a, a Cambodian massacre. He could not help a Rwandan massacre. No, God brings disasters like that. Amos asks, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? 
And if you have problems with the idea that God brings disasters in nations, you're going to really have problem with the idea of a hell. Hell is infinitely worse than anything that has come upon people in this world. And we cannot think that our city and our country is exempt. A third, God cares about his people. And this balances out the previous statement. God cares about his people. He gave Christians warning in 537 B.C., through the prophet Daniel, he gave detailed warnings through Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24. And one or two years before the war broke out, he gave even more detailed prophecy through the book of Revelation. He did that because he cares about his people. Now, he didn't indicate that all of his people would avoid suffering. Uh, Christ said, woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land. Uh, John, the apostle John, suffered under Nero's persecution. And though most Christians escaped, were even prepared with food, during that difficult time, many suffered. When verse 12 says, blessed is he who waits, it implies there are some people who wouldn't pay attention, and they wouldn't wait. And they'd come back, and they would suffer the consequences as well. But God cared about his people enough to give them some advance warning. And I believe the same is true today. God cares about his people, and if Christians suffer in any uh, possible tribulation that may come uh, against us in the future, uh, it won't be because God does not give us advance warning uh, to prepare emotionally, to prepare spiritually, uh, to be able to handle that in a godly way. You know, I'm sure that there were many people in the 36 years leading up to that war who thought, man, you, you've been saying this for a long time, but it still hasn't happened, and became complacent. Uh, and I think the same can happen today as well. I think it's been many, many years that Larry Burkett has been saying that the economy has just got to go bust. And people after a while say, well, it hasn't happened then. Maybe it's not going to happen uh, now. It's very easy uh, to become uh, complacent. But apart from massive revival and turning to the Lord, I don't think it's illogical to assume that judgment will come upon America. And if we are not preparing for judgment, even if it may or may not come, if we're not preparing for judgment, I don't think that we are being like the wise virgins in Christ's parable uh, who kept up extra oil. We're not being like the ant who stored up for calamity even when calamity was not immediately uh, threatening. God cares about his people to give them some advance warning. And uh, yet he does not protect his people from their own foolishness or their own wishful thinking. Another lesson that we can learn is that God purifies his people with the same events that harden and turn others away from him. Uh, verse 10 says, Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And I think this is another one of those testimonies to divine grace. Why do some people come through trials and tribulations softer to the Lord? A purified, made more holy, and other people who've gone through exactly the same tribulations become bitter and become hardened against God and turn against God. You can think of the two thieves on the cross. Both started off blaspheming God, but God regenerated one. He turns around and he realizes his own wickedness. He realizes the righteousness of Christ. He rebukes the other one for his blasphemy. He is turned to love the Lord. Same circumstances, and only God's grace makes the difference. Uh, I think of the, the difference between wax and clay. The same sun which softens the wax and makes it pliable is the same sun that hardens the clay. 
Isn't that true? And the same providences which soften Christians whose hearts have been regenerated, turned around to the Lord, makes them righteous, makes them pure and holy. Those same providences can make others bitter and resentful and blaspheme against God. In fact, Revelation 9 describes the tribulation that was described here. And it says this, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their own hands. See, apart from God's grace, I think that would be where we'd all be at. Unless God changes our hearts and draws us to himself, uh, none of us would repent. doesn't matter what God would bring into our lives, we would not repent. And I think that same grace that changed our hearts is a grace that Philippians promises will carry us all the way through. It'll sustain us in any difficulties that we may face. It'll keep us until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, another lesson that we can learn from verse 9 is that God only gives us so much information. I'm sure Daniel was curious. He wanted more information, and the angel just cut off any further questions. He says, no, Daniel, you've got everything that you need. And really, we have everything that we need for the future given to us in these scriptures. Uh, God expects us to use wisdom concerning the future, according to Proverbs 22 and verse 3. Lastly, we can be encouraged from verse 13 that uh, all of God's people will receive an inheritance one day and that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. We can lay up treasures in heaven, Christ says. And though scripture does speak about the importance of preparing for our families, let me tell you, you can prepare all that you want in terms of physically laying up. Nothing is going to be foolproof down here. The only thing that's foolproof is laying up treasures in heaven, right? And uh, we should really have a focus in serving the Lord. And I should tell you this too, that scripture indicates we can lay up treasures in heaven even with the mundane things that we do in life. Um, uh, uh, we, can, um, uh, we can eat the meal we're going to be eating uh, here at noon in a way that counts for eternity. We can give a cup of cold water in a way that counts for eternity. On the other hand, we could do things that are preparing for the future, but do it selfishly. We could, for example, store up food selfishly, humanistically, in a way that does not count for eternity, does not count for God. And really, that should be our ultimate goal, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And if we're consistent in doing that, God says, we are laying up for ourselves a tremendous heritage that will never fade away. And it's my prayer that uh, whatever our views on the future are, and one day it'll turn out, one's right and the other's wrong, uh, we're not going to know ahead of time, but whatever views concerning the future are, if we are God-focused, I think we can have a charity toward our brethren who may have differing views on that because they don't know the future, we don't know the future, but it'll also give us an ability to please the Lord in all of our endeavors to prepare for the future. Let's pray.